0: In his second annual message to Congress in 1862, President Lincoln attempted to remind the nation that the judgment of history should not be lightly dismissed. Fellow citizens, he said, we cannot escape history. Addressing the nation's political leaders specifically, he added that we of this Congress and this administration will be remembered in spite of ourselves. No personal significance or insignificance can spare one or another of us. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. In many respects, Lincoln was correct. History does judge us. Indeed, as Marcus and I have discussed on so many occasions, the legacy of the Civil War, for example, continues to weigh heavily upon the present. Whether for good or bad, we remember that period, in some instances, as if it only ended yesterday. In another respect, Lincoln, it might be argued, was wrong. History, especially as Lincoln characterized it in his message, does, or perhaps we as its keepers, do forget. Some events and the people who participated in and shaped them are forgotten. Asheville Citizen Times journalist Joel Burgess recently reminded us of our forgetting in an article about Newton Shepard, an African-American man who was elected to the Asheville Board of Aldermen in 1882. Marcus and I wanted to talk to Joel about that article. Who was Newton Shepard? How is it that his story has until now been forgotten and overlooked in the narrative of Asheville's history? And what does its rediscovery mean for us as a community? Marcus and I look forward to having you join us today. Welcome to another episode of the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters, and I'm Marcus Harvey. Once again, it's gl- we're glad to be back here in the studio, to have you all in the audience, to be here with us as we uh, come back for another conversation. Marcus, it looks like, as we've said in the cold open for the show, another excursion into history, into the past, and in some ways, the forgotten past.
1: Yeah, and, and, and one of the things about about history or, or the past is that um, uh, it never ceases to supply us with uh, new information uh if we are uh committed to studying it so um i'm not surprised um about uh the recent discovery uh that we'll be discussing today um so yeah this is going to be, I think, a rich conversation. Right. And so, you know, years ago, Marcus, you and I
0: did a show. We've, Well, actually, we've done a number of shows on historical preservation. And I couldn't help but think about, you know, the conversation that we had probably two, maybe three years ago with Gene Hyde, who is the head of special collections at UNC Asheville. And I found that conversation really interesting. I went back and listened to that show again, Marcus, to, to, to hear him talk about the work that goes into to creating and then maintaining an building an archive. I mean, it's real intense work, you know, and trying to get the public to kind of engage in this process becomes fundamentally important as well.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that that really uh, um, stuck with me from that conversation was, was just the importance of archiving, Mm-hmm. Right. Um, as a practice, as a discipline, um, because, uh, you know, archives play an important role in, in shaping public memory. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in crafting or fashioning um, some understanding of the past. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I finally reflect on that conversation <laughs> as a conversation mm-hmm. that really, um, really challenged me, even in my own work, to to be more attentive to to archival knowledge. Right. And, you know, you and I as scholars, we uh,
0: come to value the work that archivists do to actually mm-hmm. put this material together. And, you know, and I think, you know, Marcus, it would be instructive for us all to hear. Now, I just let me say this about the, the research that I do as an Americanist who focuses on American history. Um, I get to go to these archives here and, and the records are there. But you in a way are doing work the work that you do in your discipline and in your field and the focus of your work which is looking at the indigenous religious traditions of people in of african of, of people in africa is a little bit more intense than I would say the work that I'm doing in kind of our uh, kind of well-kept and air-conditioned uh, <laughs> archives here in the United States. I mean, it, you know, you've told me a little bit about the stories of what you've had to do to kind of dig into that history. And I have always found it, you know, just an impressive story. Could you share just a little bit of that with us here?
1: Well, just, just briefly, I would say, I, and I would I would argue that uh, the the, the the work that we each do, um, respectively, um, um, th- those projects are are intense in their own ways. So I wouldn't say that one is more necessarily more intense than the other. But yeah, uh, you know, as as I've said on previous shows, uh, my my work really focuses on exploring um, African indigenous. Um, spiritual systems, religious systems, um, and I explore them um, really as cultural systems that produce knowledge that is meaningful for the communities that practice these traditions. And so uh, one of the things that is interesting about um, this work is that um, there really is no um, written archive uh, produced by African indigenous practitioners themselves that I can sort of go to and dig into. Uh, much of the written archival knowledge about um, Africa and African traditions, um, unfortunately, was produced by um, colonizing Europeans, right? And so, <laughs> while while some of those materials do provide um, important details, uh, you know, we it would be intellectually irresponsible to allow those accounts to really have the last word. So, You're right? So, so much of my work as, as a phenomenologist of religion um really involves taking seriously how practitioners themselves um understand their traditions think about traditions transmit their traditions orally and so this <laughs> is uh, this is um uh required me to spend a little bit of time on the continent actually having face-to-face conversations with <laughs> practitioners um and and hearing from them uh their oral understanding of of these traditions which what which have been passed down to them from previous generations, and so uh, you know one of the things that, that you immediately encounter when you when you begin to pay attention seriously to to African cultural traditions is that um, uh, knowledge in these traditions is transgenerational, mm-hmm. and what makes that knowledge transgenerational is its capacity for oral transmission. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, we don't find the kind of obsession in these traditions with um, or in these cultural contexts with textualization right which mm-hmm. with writing everything down you know et cetera, et cetera, with archives at least written archives no there's a there's a kind of oral cultural archive that requires a different a different methodological approach to access and so yeah i, I think that's that's a a, a difference in and the work that we do so Mm -hmm. so yeah i i think you deal with written archives and and my work sort of forces me to dig into i guess oral archives right and then you know marcus one of the challenges as i as i think about
0: and reflect on what you just said about the oral tradition that that was strong in in African American communities, especially during the period of enslavement and then moving into this period right after the Civil War. Um, the oral tradition is not as strong today, I think, within African American communities than it has been. So, um, and then still, there's still challenges, I believe, if you talk to some archivists with getting, uh, with getting. Members of of these of of communities like African American communities to preserve actual records themselves, and then to make those records available. So there's still a lot of work to be done here, and I would say too that we as Americans don't tend to prize the preservation of history uh, the way other people groups. I think you know if you even in old Europe, if you look at how Europe is about this, and even in Africa, you know we don't prize the preservation of these uh, of this material the way that i think that we really should but at the end of the day the preservation of these records become important to us as scholars and i think to writing this story it becomes important to understanding the present moment that we're in would you
1: agree yeah i would and and I, and one of the interesting things about uh uh the united states really and other in other modern western um uh nation states or societies is that um There really is a certain political capital that comes along with text, Mm -hmm. right? So if you can produce a text, right, um, you know, you're assumed to have a certain kind of legitimacy that you uh, otherwise wouldn't have, right? So there's a certain political capital that comes along with text, with literacy, um, uh, etc., and these these things become markers of civilization, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, they 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 become markers of, of, of civilization, and these are precisely uh well, these are two of the criteria that were used to conclude that the folks that I study, right, and, and right. their ancestors and their ancestors uh were uncivilized. <laughs> right. So when we talk about written archives, when we talk about written text, when we talk about the transmission of knowledge in the West in written form right uh we really are talking about and uh in many ways a colonizing practice right Right, right. or 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 as a practice that um historically has been integrally linked to the project of european expansion and also euro american colonization Mm, right right. so so the writing itself um, text themselves in many ways are our colonial artifacts that continue to to, to, to live with us in, in in powerful ways. Just quickly, there's a uh, one of my favorite um, African proverbs, which comes out of the Akan tradition, which I think sort of underscores the important of the importance of of orality, particularly from from elders in African communities or in Akan communities. Uh, goes something in English like um, the mouth the mouth of an elder is more potent than a charm. Right. The mouth of an elder is more potent than a charm, which basically means that um, the the knowledge that is spoken through the mouth of an elder. Right. Is authoritative, Mm. is important, um, is valuable because it contains knowledge that the community uh, needs. And so um, to your point about uh, the sort of disinterest in the West uh, in history. you know, it, we may do well in the United States to to treat the mouths of our elders with a similar kind of reverence. No, we right, don't. Right.
0: We, right. don't. Right. we don't. We don't. And I, you know, I wonder, Marcus, what it would take to kind of restore that type of tradition, especially within our communities. I can't help but think, Marcus, as, I, as we talk about this issue of history, historical preservation, uh, uncovering lost and forgotten stories. About the conversation that we also had with of Claude Coleman. Remember, Claude and a group of people were doing restoration work on Rabbit's Hotel, which is uh, an African was really the only establishment that served one of the only a few. Establishments that served African Americans during the Jim Crow era here in Asheville. It's interesting with that story because when that story aired and then the podcast, it was caught by a listener in Texas who actually wrote us to talk about their connection to Rabbit's mm-hmm. Hotel. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's interesting to me, Marcus, to of what uh, happens once these these stories uh, come out and people hear about the work that's being done about around historical preservation. Are when we inco- uncover a story that has been lost to time. And in a few minutes, we're going to be talking to Joel Burgess about one of those stories. But it is interesting what happens when people find out about this work. It seems to just reconnect them with something that they feel has been lost of value in their own existence and their own experiences.
1: Yeah. And, and I, I think one of the things that happens when people encounter these stories is that it is that uh, they awaken something in people right they they awaken perhaps an awareness to your point that uh wait a minute i i am connected to something that has gone before let me go learn more about that so that i can better understand what i'm experiencing now uh in the present and so uh, sometimes you know <laughs> to reference uh, um, an older metaphor an older two by four metaphor from um, <laughs> from Dr. Turner um, in a very different context. Um, I-, I wonder sometimes if these if these 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 stories, these I think uh, very inspiring stories uh, might serve to sort of you know knock us over the head and wake us up right <laughs> right um, right uh, as a way of saying, you know wait, you know <laughs> hey, this history is here. This past is here. It's right here in your backyard. Pay attention to it. You can learn from it. You know, wake up and do the work.
0: Right, right. right. So, uh, Marcus, I think that that's a perfect way to bring uh, Joel Burgess into this conversation. And many of you, you recognize Joel's name. and You recognize his voice when you hear his voice here on the show because he's been here on Blue Ridge Public Radio a number of times. And, you know, wonderful articles that he produces in the local newspaper in the Asheville Citizen Times. I've had a chance to know, Joel, the opportunity uh, and the privilege of knowing Joel for a while. And, Joel, but come on into this conversation. We're so glad that you could take the time to join us today to have a conversation about history, historical memory, and then for us to dig into this article that you wrote a couple of months ago. Well,
2: as a a listener to the show, I, I have to tell you how thrilled I am. Uh, to get the invitation and you know of course i've met you uh darren and, and now i actually get to to talk with uh with marcus which which is just a great pleasure thanks for having me
0: Right. Well, Joel, could you just, you know, as we get started here, you you and I have been talking about history for a while. I mean, you know, so I'm a professional historian. I think that that was the way that our our relationship started with each other is just a conversation around history. And I know that you grew up in the eastern part of the state. You lived in the eastern part of the state of North Carolina for a while. And and you and I, I think we got into a conversation about stories even there in the in the places where oh. you grew up that you didn't know. Right? Oh, yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. it was I, Actually, that was, that was very eye-opening for me. Um, I grew up, we would describe it as the central part of the state, we'd say the Piedmont, Alamance County, <laughs> and I went to Alamance County Public Schools, and uh, we had a pretty standard uh, history curriculum, and I, I remember the major points about, at least that I was told, you know, about the history of the country and the area. And here I am having this conversation with you and I bring up Alamance County and you say, oh, yeah, Wyatt Outlaw. And I went <laughs> and you said, yeah, he was the first black sheriff. They lynched him." And I just I, I was befuddled, kind of angry, too, that I <laughs> thought about this pretty darn important uh, historic event um, that occurred in my backyard. and. I do have to say, you know, I I went and looked into into what happened to Wyatt Outlaw. And I believe uh, technically his his title was constable or, you know, public safety constable or something. Right. But yeah, he was he was the sheriff and was lynched by a group that if it wasn't the KKK, it was very similar, very similar and, and had affiliations. And in fact, now you hear Outlaw's name when when there were protests in uh, alamance county in graham and just this past year following the, the death of, of george floyd people were in the streets pointing at the direction where he was likely hanged you know which wasn't far from a confederate statue
0: well you're listening to the waters and harvey show on blue ridge public radio and we're going to take a sharp break please stay with us Welcome back to the Waters and Harvest show. Our guest today is Asheville Citizen Times reporter Joel Burgess, and we're talking about history, historical memory, and Marcus, you know, uh, we just went out into that break where Joel's talking about, you know, Wyatt Outlaw and that history down in Alamance County, and Interestingly, you know, Joel placed that in the context of really the times that we're living in now and this kind of rebirth of interest, especially in the history of African-Americans in the state, which have re- really been galvanized uh, around the whole uh, murder of George Floyd last year but let me just let you come on in here Marcus and and continue this
1: conversation with Joel yeah I'm, and, and now both of you have me curious to learn more about Wyatt outlaw I'm, I'm ashamed <laughs> to say that I, I this is my first time learning of, of Wyatt outlaw and what happened to him um, in that part of the state um, yeah so I'm so Joel and, and and I think you've already begun to do this but but I'm curious to hear more about um, the work that you do as a journalist um, I know that uh, I know from Darren from, from Conversation that we've had that, uh, that some, some of your work at least has to do with uh, the recovery of, of lost stories, right? Like that of Wyatt Outlaw. Uh, but could you say a bit more about kind of what what energizes your journa- your journalism?
2: You know, I have to say it's, I think a lot of it is looking around where I live and trying to understand more about it. I happened to move, you know, to Asheville more than two decades ago, but I moved Uh, I moved into a house uh, back in 2002 on South French Broad Avenue, Mm -hmm. historically black neighborhood. And here I am, you know, uh, this white man and uh, my wife living here kind of looking around, uh, getting to know my neighbors. uh, Most of them are black and just kind of curious about the the history of this town. So I I come from, as I said, a different part of the state where, you know, the racial dynamics are are a little bit different. And here I am trying to learn about this new city and lo and behold, uh, down the street is the house of a man named Reuben Daly who in 1969 oh, let me say this I wrote in December December well anyway, 2017 I wrote was the first elected black city councilman and I was corrected by a certain University <laughs> of North Carolina at Asheville professor named Darren Waters <laughs> in fact, there was there was a man elected uh, long before that, who actually was the first African-American city elected official. So it, it's kind of just this cascading bit of knowledge and trying to learn about where I am and being curious about the people surrounding me. Um, I, you know, I learned a lot about my neighborhood, about Southside um, and just it, it what it was before, for example, uh, Urban Renewal, you know, the programs that that. Tore it apart in the name of of uh, blight removal Mm -hmm. and in the end really just destroyed a community. But, yeah, so I think that's what spurred it. And then I also have to say another aspect of my reporting that has has changed in the past uh, three or four years is I've started to to do uh, more looking into uh, police, policing, policing. policing relations with minorities and every now and then just something big falls into my lap. And you all may remember the, uh, the leaked body cam video, uh, that I got of the encounter between, uh, Johnny Rush,
0: Rush, right.
2: Actually right down the street and a white officer named Christopher Hickman. And mm-hmm. it, it depicted a, a brutal encounter. Um, and it actually turned out to change a lot of things in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there were a lot of other things happening, but it, it was a catalyst.
0: All right. Well, Joel, it's interesting because you know. Uh, so you've already mentioned Ruben Daly, and 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 even within the African American community, you you and I both have talked about this. Um, the, the thought was that Ruben Daly was the first African American elected to Asheville City Council, in 1969. Marcus and I had an opportunity to have a, a really good conversation with uh, with Mr. Matthew Bacote not too long ago. We did the show with him. And he was telling us about the political history of Asheville in the 1950s and stories that I didn't even know about. You know, he and I can't recall right here, Marcus, the name of the individual that he said ran for city council in the 1950s. But I think that that was a hidden story as well. Just the simple fact that this particular gentleman, in, uh, an African-American, actually ran for elected office, you know, long before Reuben Daly was elected to uh, to the city council in the 1960s. But Joel, what I what I'm struck by is that you know it had to be at least two, maybe maybe longer years between your you and I talking about um, the fact that Ruben Daly was not the first. Um, and it's interesting that I have had conversations with so many others in in the community, and that still has never registered with folks. But it did with you. It stayed with you. And I'm wondering, what was it about that that just kind of stuck with you? Because this is going to take us to this article to talk about your article, which was in the uh, the February 28th uh, edition of the Asheville Citizen Times, looking at the first city council, or board of aldermen member in 1882. Why is it that that story stuck with you? <laughs> the way, and I, and I'm very appreciative of the fact that it did.
2: Oh, <laughs> uh, that's that's a good question. I mean, uh, there's probably several things that went into it. One is being scolded by our professor. Okay. Um, <laughs> another would be uh, I my my father is also a, he was a history teacher, a high school history teacher. It was his second career after uh, the Navy, and so we spent a lot of time talking about history. And I I think I'm pretty sure I spent some time in cemeteries with him also looking at headstones and gaining appreciation for it. And then, you know, honestly, um, Darren, some of it was just wanting to set the record straight also because I had had written that Daly was the first and it was bugging me. And I said, I've got to write who the first really was. And so I got a hold of your dissertation. And then one to find what happened to this guy, right? Where, right. Was he what? What records were there out there? And just reporters, we have a little bit of amateur historian in, in us, just because we we probably deal with records a bit more than than most people. We know which records to go to to find certain things. First, mm-hmm. it's death certificates, uh, property transfers, um, you know, various things like that. And so that helped me too. All right. Flesh out a few things uh, that you didn't cover. In a, I got to say, in a pretty darn comprehensive way in your dissertation, you know, because there, there wasn't a lot out there. And I, I was right at what you found, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Marcus was. Well,
1: yeah. yeah. And, and you know, before we move to Newton Shepard, because I'm, I'm really interested to learn more about Newton Shepard. I, I do sort of have a question uh, for both of you that, that has been um, kind of bugging me for the past few minutes. And that is, so when I think about, you know, the stories of Reuben Daly, um, Wyatt Outlaw and how these stories are not widely known, right? They're, you know, forgotten. Um, I I think it might be important for our listeners to to hear um, from you, Joel, as a journalist and also from you, brother, as a professional historian, um, something about how, how stories like this get lost right how how is it that these stories end up forgotten Mm -hmm. right when 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 they are so important to the um to the historical narrative right um of of this area so just a word about that um uh, if if y'all don't mind all right
0: joel joel i'll let you uh you know by all means let you jump in here
2: well I, i i actually have to say that some of it has come from my conversations with historians um, like Darren. And I think that what happened is I realized that I had this blank space in terms of my understanding in history, and it was reconstruction. And I don't think that growing up, even in a household that I think was rather progressive, but also was Southern, I have, I have very deep Southern roots. I mean, heck, just because of a weird generational Fluke, uh, I have a great grandfather who was a who's a Confederate Civil War veteran. Believe it or not, named after him. Um, And so, you know, there are these roots. And so, Reconstruction is not something celebrated among white Southerners typically, right? That's when that's when outlaw was hanged. That's when Mm -hmm. he was lynched. It's not something you know talked about in the schoolrooms, the predominantly white school school schoolrooms where I went. Sure, there was a a black population, but they you know they're reliant on this curriculum they're presenting with in a lot of ways, because of what Marcus is saying, the oral history has faded, right? <laughs> so they, they've lost some of that. So that's, that's my, you know, in terms of outlaw and in terms of shepherd, I, I guess the same thing. He's from the same period. He was from a very strange turbulent period that I don't think uh, whites particularly wanted to celebrate um, because of it. it Mm-hmm. There was brutality on their part. There was political terror. There was loss. There was disruption. They, had, you know, southern whites, uh, southern whites had lost the war, and they were their their culture was was really torn apart. And then I imagine for blacks living in Asheville it was a pretty frightening time too, and mm-hmm. a traumatic time. You know, maybe more traumatic than the end of slavery. You know, mm-hmm. it seemed to me, that this backlash that they were facing was was very difficult.
0: Enjoy, and, and I would, you know, Marcus. I would, in in many ways, echo what what Joel has said here, and it has a lot to do with the curriculum that is taught in schools. Um, that you know, certain histories, as you and I both, you and I both have talked about this, and people like Carter G. Woodson. We're concerned with this, um, Woodson being, you know, kind of the father of Black history, that certain groups in this country, their histories have been so marginalized that eventually they just become erased. They just disappear yeah, yeah. until we begin to kind of do the type of work that um, that Joel did here to kind of, you know, bring it out in, in a popular form, like in a newspaper. Very few people, you know, I, d- I deeply appreciate the fact that Joel read my dissertation that he looked at the dissertation that it was a source of um <laughs> a source of good information for him but brother you and i both know yeah those 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 yeah, things. No normally, one has read mine. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Not one person. <laughs> That's right. They end up getting put off on the shelf and they collect that. <laughs> but I am really glad that Joel went to it and, and and pulled it out. And that we had this conversation that this this conversation about Newton Shepherd stuck with him. So what you know, I think that a good turn here in this conversation is just to ask you, Joel, yeah. who was who was Newton Shepherd? And you're right. You know, I I deal with him briefly in the dissertation, but you were able to do a lot more digging and pull out even more information than I was able to do in that dissertation. But who was Newton Shepard?
2: I I guess, um, you know, overall, if I was going to characterize him, he's a rather unassuming man who Mm -hmm. who took a seat at city government at a very dangerous time for black people, Mm -hmm. particularly to be in politics. Right. I mean, just to exist as a black person at that time, I think was very dangerous because of the backlash and because of the Klan the and, and other things. And so to actually step into the political arena, I think, was remarkable, considering he didn't have any really extreme pedigree in terms of in terms of politics. So one looking back again at these records that, that I was able to find birth records, I think the thing that was the most useful was actually the delayed birth certificate of his daughter. She didn't get a birth certificate right away. Mm-hmm. May have been common practice at that time not to, but when she did, it included information that she knew about her parents. And uh, we know that that Shepard was uh, was born into slavery. Mm-hmm. There was uh, I believe you pointed, Darren to the obituary, they may have talked about him living in the city all his life. That's right. But but there is a uh, in in those records we see about uh, birth death. Um, it talks about him being born in some unnamed part of Tennessee. Oh in, wow! In 1841, uh, we don't know how he got here. Uh, that wasn't uh, well documented. We know his wife was was also born uh, in an unnamed part of Tennessee. Um, His wife's name, by the way, was Lucinda White. Uh, He was either uh, she was either 19 or 21 when when they were married. And then again, because of these sort of disparate records we have. Uh, it, it appears to me he was 34 years old when he married her. Although there's there's uh, another record that says he was 25, but I, I would probably go with the older date. And while again I, I describing him as unassuming, it he did appear in some records uh, for the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, and he was named to help represent the church in terms of some purchases. Uh, I think they bought a small bit of land for 302 dollars um and uh also some some church pews and he uh as as you point out a lot of the other things that I know about him you were able to 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 pull in you I think began talking about him uh when he uh joined politics for that brief time in 1882 Mm -hmm. and I you I don't know how much of this was in your dissertation how much you told me well, you were perched on the hillside, where we <laughs> were grave, but you were sort of puzzling over um, how is it that he was able to get elected in the city that at the time had a ward system. In other words, a district based mm-hmm. system is what I understood you to mean. And so that he couldn't have been elected solely with black votes mm-hmm. to have the support of uh, of white uh, Ashevillians. And at the time, uh and if you please tell me if I'm wrong, because I think you covered this part of the history really well and, and told me a lot about it, is um, you had Republicans who were seen as more progressive racially, who initially, particularly during the Reconstruction, did quite well. And that's when you started to see these uh, black uh, elected officials, although really more down east, right? That, that's where the population center was in terms of. African Americans, and then they they lost their hold briefly. Uh, Democrats came back, and and really uh, among the Democrats, you had I think I use the term unreformed Confederates mm-hmm. were present, and there was and then for some unknown reason, Republicans were able to gain power again, and that is when uh, Shepard was elected, and he was elected along with a white mayor. Um, and that's when he had his his brief moment in uh, Asheville history.
0: You know, Joel, and it's interesting, Marcus, if I could just kind of insert. Yeah, I want to I want to tell Joel this about because it, it, I was just reminded as he was kind of laying out the story as he tells it in the paper. But, Joel, I do have to know this. The, that story, uh, a number of people apparently across the state read the story, too. And because I was in Rocky Mount. I was in Rocky Mount at a restaurant having dinner and I'm sitting there having dinner and a guy who was sitting next to me and my friend who was there um, ended up asking me about history. It's like, you know, do you you know, are you what do you know about history? Not knowing that I was historian, And then he asked, he said, you know, because um, I'm interested in Civil War history and everything. He said, did you hear about the story? uh about finding the grave of this man up in Asheville hes he he said that he said that to me because when, I, and it came up because I told him I was from Asheville I said are you talking about the story about the uh the first uh black council member he said yes yes I'm talking about do you know anything do you know about that story I said well you know yes I do I said I was in that story <laughs> right? so, and he and he was just absolutely shocked so just so you know the story was picked up by people as far away as Rocky Mount, who are just interested in these discoveries of stories that people don't know anything about. But I had to get that in Marcus just to make sure that, that Joel knew about that because I hadn't shared that yeah, with him yeah. up to this point. And, that's and, that's an and,
2: incredibly and, rewarding thing to hear as a journalist.
1: Yeah, yeah, it and, is. You just and, you know, and
2: I, I mean that in all earnestness. That's mm-hmm. wonderful. I want to yeah. thank you for sharing
1: that. Yeah. yeah. And, and brother, knowing you as I do, I'm sure you took great delight <laughs> in, in, in letting this guy know who you were and what you do. <laughs> oh, yes, I <laughs> did. In fact, in fact Joel, I pulled, I pulled
0: the story up on my phone to say, is this the story that you're talking uh,
2: about? <laughs> and it's, he's looking. it's got Darren's picture. is on I mean, he's on, right. the front, he's on the front of the story, standing there over the gravesite. Yeah, That's right.
1: So, uh, well, so, 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 uh, so, so listening to you, to you, Joel, um, talk about Newton Shepard, um, uh, listening to what you said earlier, Darren, it, it it seems to me that uh, what we know or what is known about, really, I, I guess in general, um, the, the sort of history of Black political participation in Asheville is kind of an unfolding thing, right? Um, it seems that you know we're still learning. Um, about that history. So I guess my question to you, Joel, would be um, having written this story on Newton Shepard, what do you think this discovery does to what is known about, um, you know, black political participation in Nashville um, during the the 19th uh, and 20th centuries?
2: Wow. Um, I think that it opens a lot of our eyes because I think that the perception of Asheville, even now for people that don't know a lot about Asheville and are coming to Asheville in a new way, it's, it seems like a very white city, right? Mm-hmm. I think the resurgence of Asheville, the rebirth of Asheville, if you want to call it that, has been a very white rebirth. Um, I came here then, you know? It, it was uh, my friends that were here, Moving here, were white, and we uh, luckily came here early enough in the 1990s that we stumbled upon some of the the black culture and and history that was still there. We stumbled upon the block. There were still businesses there that we would go to, um, and we would meet people. Um, I, I began working when at the newspaper when Terry Bellamy uh, was elected the first African American mayor, and so Bellamy. Would talk about her how she grew up. She would talk about memories. She would be, oftentimes, she would be part of that or, or attempt to be. You could see it trying to be that oral history and remind people they're black people here. Here's what we here's where we came from. You know, to to the best of her mm-hmm. and experience of it. She's not a historian, but she did. A, I thought she did a great job of conveying this stuff. And that helped. I have to say, I didn't uh, think to say this earlier, but I think that that. Uh, Bellamy really helped pique my interest too, you know, telling me about, about her youth. <laughs> and so I think it helps us remember that this culture is much of Asheville is much deeper and broader than this sort of new renaissance that we're all seeing. That, you know, we, we know about the breweries, we know about the the outdoor recreation that's become so popular. But but there's this there's this culture that's there. And and we've seen also a political. Uh, you could argue rebirth, uh, even with a, a black population that is that has shrunk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Suddenly, uh, you've got three, uh, three black council members. Mm-hmm. Remarkable, considering the, the size of the population now, which I think last we tracked was about 12 percent right. of the population. So uh, something is happening mm-hmm. in Asheville. And I think it's it's spurred people's interest. It's helped spur my interest. Um Uh, I I also have to say, Darren, I don't know if I told you I was able to get in touch with former councilman uh, Cecil Bothwell uh, and Cecil's white, but he also had a real interest in Newton Shepard to the point that you said something and it must have stuck in his head because he wanted to rename a street. Yep,
0: sure did. You know, it sure did. And I would love to see that that come back and you know, come back up again, Joel. But this is a good place to just take a quick break and just remind you you're listening to the Watterson Harvey Show and Blue Ridge Public Radio. And we're gonna take a short break and, and stay with us and we'll be back in just a moment. So welcome back to the Waters and Harvey show. Our guest today, again, is Asheville Citizen Time reporter, Joel Burgess. We're talking about an article that he wrote recently in February, on February 28th, about Newton Shepard, who was the first African-American to serve on Asheville's governing board. At that time, it was called the Board of Aldermen. And Joel, you've given you know Marcus and I in the audience a, a really good, uh, I think, good background and story on on Newton Shepard, you found out more about him than I was able to find out in my dissertation. But what I'd like to talk about now is talk about um. You know, Newton Shepard died in 1924 and where he's buried because you um, you actually surprised me with the writing of this story. You know, you call me. I just have to, you know, just set this up and we'll talk about this. You call me. I thought he was buried in an unmarked grave in Riverside Cemetery. But you call me. Uh, well, you sent a message to me first telling me, you know, meet me over at Riverside. So I thought, man, Joel has done the real deep work and has found this grave. And I got there. Marcus, I to tell you. I think I told you about this. I got there and I thought Joel was just going to march me right over to the grave. He said, "No, we're going to find it together. It's here. You know it is, Mark." So, I was like, you know, uh Joel, you were making me face my own uh mortality walking through the graveyard on that day, but it was um it, it was a uh a day of discovery because we were able to locate that grave. So, can you tell us a little bit about how you did this investigative work and how you found out about where he was buried.
2: Well, you you gave the best clue, right? And then that he was in Riverside. And then lo and behold, there are records, really well-kept records in terms of what you can find about where people are buried. And uh, I believe it was through them. And I, I have to say, I also reached out to uh, city staff and the director of the cemetery there, uh, Josh uh, Darity, uh, confirmed he was there. And I, I figured, okay, let's go do history. I've got a history professor. <laughs> off, we, off we marched. and It's a pretty hilly and steep cemetery. So it, it was a slog a bit in, in some cases. And the grave was not uh, that well marked. It turned mm-hmm. out. The sections actually are not as well marked as we thought. Um, and so uh josh darity again the director of the cemetery uh answered our pleas and came out to find us and helped us basically locate where uh this this gravesite would be and probably was marked right Mm -hmm. originally originally, of course it would be marked but it's just faded it's a small small stone if it was if that's what the marker still is and and there you were, you know, perched with one leg higher, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and this, at the first councilman, and, and you know, and and then I think this it all just came out. You just started talking, and it was great.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, Marcus, you it, it was it was a, a sight to see because we're standing there, Joel and I were walking back and forth to try to find this, and you know, Josh did come over. And we're like, where is it? He said, You're standing on it. <laughs> so and it's a small, very small market that was there. But Marcus,
1: let me let you jump in. Yeah, and and, and, and and just to back up a little bit, because I do I do want to hear more about um uh this sort of unkempt nature of the section of, of Riverside Cemetery where um, where Shepard is buried. But um, going back to your story for a moment, uh, Joel, about Shepard, um, as, as you probably know, um, and, and as Darren is, is fond of reminding me and probably announcing to others too, you know, <laughs> I tend to be the pessimist <laughs> between the two of us. He tends to be the optimist. And so I'm, I'm really curious to hear from you um, Responses to uh, what you've written about Shepard, and uh, earlier we were talking about. I think I think you mentioned Joel that there there seems to be an interest um, an interest in in Asheville in um, learning more about um, you know these these sort of undiscovered histories, but but I'm curious to hear from you how deep you think that interest is. I mean, is it are people really interested in in learning about not not just Shepherd but also what happened to Wyatt Outlaw and I mean and, and, and others? I mean, what so 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 thoughts about that, Joel? As 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 a journalist who really is on the front lines of this kind of investigative um, historical research.
2: Right. And I'll try to answer, I'll try to answer it. Honestly, I understand your, um, uh, pessimism. Um, I, I I do think that, uh, interest in certain things tends to wax and wane, right? There's windows that people do, Mm. uh, feel a lot of interest. I, I, with that in mind, I would say that now's the time to explore it because, uh, the more you do, the more it will be recorded. You talked about archives, you Mm -hmm. know, and, and, Here's the time maybe to find things again and collect them and put them down and put them in newspapers and write dissertations uh, so that they can be found again when people again renew their interest in this sort of thing. So I, I can't say going forward, I hope that people maintain this inter- interest and understand that that Asheville, uh, well, of course, yeah, there was this uh, population of European descent that came in and, and yeah. we all know about here that there's, there's a lot of other different people. Involved in in making this city, and and then and in helping to build just crucial infrastructure too later, like Darren talks about with the with the railroad, mm-hmm. the number of, of, of black workers that were out there that built this this vital piece of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. I don't know if I can if I can really dispel that sense of <laughs> except to say now is the time to plant to see to 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 create that archive so it can be found again if the information does fade away a bit and mm-hmm. will do lose some interest i you know i i is a positive a positive sign the uh the director of the cemetery josh darity stood there and just listened to to darren talk you could tell he was absorbing this and he said i haven't heard this and he wanted to know uh he wants to know about the people uh whose whose remains he oversees and mm-hmm. Um, and it was great that he knew where it was and it's, you know, it was a hilly section of the cemetery you asked a bit about to describe it. It was, you know, it was mowed, but there wasn't much else there, you know, Mm -hmm, um, there were a couple of trees. And so really it's, it's, it's going to be up to those, you know, people that, that run the cemeteries, historians like you, journalists like me, you know, and, and just amateur, historians and people who are interested to to find it themselves Mm -hmm. and to find the records. Mm -hmm.
0: So it's interesting that you bring that up, Joel, because one of the, you know, maybe one of the last things to discuss here is that when we talk about Riverside Cemetery itself, I mean, it's a cemetery where a lot of notables from Asheville's history are buried in the cemetery. Um, It's a, it's, it's a, you know, the view from that cemetery is a remarkable view to look across the mountainside to see it, um, but we know that Thomas Wolfe is buried there. Um, I guess you know uh, Zelda Fitzgerald. I think would be buried. Her remains are buried there. A number of people who are there. Uh, one person in particular, and you and I talked about this that day when we were walking through the cemetery, is that Virgil Lusk, who uh, who was a prosecutor uh, here in um, in Asheville, a former Confederate officer who became a very uh, active um, a defender of political rights for African Americans who went after the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, is it's interesting these shifts that people make. Uh one of my colleagues, Mark Marcus and I have uh have had him on the show, um historian Stephen Nash has written about Lusk. He tells me he um, and Steve has told me from time to time that he's gone over to Riverside Cemetery and just stood there at Lusk's grave (laughs) to say, you know, I'm just trying to understand you, to figure you out. And so you've got these notables who are buried there. And it's a very scenic uh, cemetery. But and and you and I talked about this a little bit uh, prior to us jumping on the show that your article has stimulated this interest among a group of people here in Asheville to do something about that African-American section of Riverside Cemetery. But I'll say this too, that while that is an African-American section of the cemetery, we discovered in talking to Josh who, is oversees the upkeep of the cemetery there, that there are integrated sections of that cemetery that have always been integrated sections, which I was surprised to discover that. But this particular section has, is not very well kept. Um, and, you know, Shepherd does not no longer really has a headstone there. And people are now interested in doing something about this. So your article has has really uh, stimulated this interest among a group of citizens here in Asheville to say, okay, we need to do something to kind of restore this part of that cemetery. You know, what is your reaction to that, Joel? How do you feel about that?
2: I think I think earlier I said that, you know, one of the greatest rewards for a journalist is for somebody to have read his story, particularly from far away and quoted from it, but what you've said actually is much better is when something that you do spurs people to action. And I'm, I'm touched and pleased to hear that people were so interested that they want to dedicate time and resources mm-hmm. to memorializing this man who uh again, I, I just I thought that the way in which he he was he interjected himself or was interjected, we don't really know into history was was something to remember.
1: Mhm. Yes. Yeah, and this is this this is so interesting, um uh, Joel now. I lo- I'd love to hear more about about Shepherd uh, and other work that you've done. Uh but but as we sort of approach the the, the close of our show, Joel, I'm I'm curious to hear from you. Um any new uh, stories you're working on that involve uh, <laughs> uh, lost, um, forgotten figures or or um, buried stories that are in need of, of excavation and sharing that you want to sort of tease
2: them? <laughs> <from>? <laughs> you're, you're asking me to leak a story to you before. I, you know, <laughs> don't ask a reporter that. You know, I, I, um, I have to tell you, you know, in terms of the historical stories, I am always, uh, I always have my eyes open and I'm looking and I've been writing about Vance, uh, Zebulon Vance, the former governor a bit because the monuments coming down. I really think that I feel like I've written history pieces and uh, yes, yeah, some of them have, have dealt with, uh, you know, Black villains, but I, I feel like there's this, there's this new chapter that's being written right now. And so I have to say, I think I'm more excited and, and talking about that and just saying what will happen mm-hmm. move forward as as this monument this you know ashville's most prominent monument to the past comes down what yeah. will replace place it who will we be? i am just fascinated to to see
1: yeah and, and in a way joel, marcus and, you, and, and, and joel great job not leaking anything <laughs>
0: And and Marcus, you know, I I will say here, you know, as Joel wrapped that up, he's really kind of touching upon the questions that you and I have been asking in in many of the latest shows that we have been uh, we've been hosting of those questions of who are we and who do we want to be and how does a uh, reflection upon these kind of lost and forgotten stories of history, what bearing do they have on how we will respond to those particular questions? And I'm also thinking, Marcus, here as well, you know, as as we come down on the last few minutes of the show about um, – the whole conversation here in the city around reparations and how that it, you know, it's not just here in the city of Asheville, but this is kind of a conversation that is going on in other places. Uh, the House of Representatives, the U.S. House yeah. of Representatives just uh, approved um, a resolution to begin at least studying this. We'll see where that goes. There's, there's a lot more political work to be done around that. But, you know, how does uncovering these stories, what, what impact, bearing does that have on the whole issue of reparations and what does this work to restore this this particular area of Riverside Cemetery where Newton Shepard is buried what bearing does that have upon the whole question and the issue of reparations as well so these are you know these are some of the questions that we're kind of thinking about but but um you know maybe I'm off on the beaten path here but I'm wondering (laughs) what the connection may be
2: here Well, I'll throw one thing in. I I should have said this in terms of history. I do think, as Asheville moves forward and starts talking about reparations, it of course will have to deal with the past, right? Mm -hmm. Reparations for what? So, I do think there will be history to be talked about. Stuff will be uncovered. I think there is a chance to hear great oral tradition as people talk about recent history, right? Talk about being displaced.
0: And so it's going to be, I think you, Joel, I, Joel, I think that you are very right in in capturing those stories that are going to be very important. So one of the things that Marcus and I would like to say to the audience is just to let you know that we are going to be hosting an upcoming show. On the question of reparations, another live version of the Waters and Harvey show. We did the first live version, Mark, as you remember back in February. We're going to do another one on May 26th. That's going to deal with this question of can America be repaired? You know, and it's going to be a roundtable discussion on the issue of reparations, especially as the city of Asheville begins to, to uh, take
1: on this, this issue of reparations yeah very very important discussion i mean especially and i i would just say this quickly before we before we wrap up um uh, fr- from my perspective and from the from the point of view of others like charles blow um more than enough is already known to make a strong case for reparations like i, I don't know that we need any, anything else to be uncovered <laughs> to make that case but, I, so, but but i think that you know for, for example you know the condition of of Shepherd's grave, for example, and and, and so forth, um, uh, is is something that we can add to the case for you know resource reallocation, right? Uh, and in in a way that serves the the goal of repairing or trying to repair um, the offenses of the past via slavery and so forth.
0: Right. So uh, for you all in the audience, a couple of questions that we'd love for you all to be thinking about as we prepare for that upcoming show on May 26th on the issue of reparations is what is justice? You know, when you think about that, what to you is justice? What is justice? And another question we'd love for you all to be thinking about and maybe just email Marcus and I and just let us know your thoughts on these questions. The other question would be in what form of reparations will bring racial justice. And we'll be thinking about those in the lead up to that to that show. But Joel, we wanna thank you again for being here with us today. We think this has been a lively conversation. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for the work that you're doing and thank you for uncovering this very important story in Asheville's history. And as we get ready to leave, Marcus and I want to remind you that the Watterson Harvey Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina, in partnership with the Institute for the Promotion of Human Understanding.
1: And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, the BPR and NPR One mobile apps and on Apple Podcasts and Google Play.
0: And you can follow us and you can get in touch on Facebook and Twitter or you can write us at WHshow at BPR.org. And Marcus and I will look forward to talking to you all again next time. Take care.